Thank you for tuning in to the sermon podcast from Redeeming Hope. We exist as a family of faith that follows Jesus and helps others find him by living all of life as missionaries of hope. If you want more information about our church or would like to support our ministry, go to our website at redeeminghope.org. Please enjoy this sermon podcast. Well, hello, Redeeming Hope. It is so good to be with you today. My name is Preston Sharp. I am the pastor of Sacrament Church in Nashville, and I am also, I have the privilege of being one of the overseers for Redeeming Hope, and I'm so glad to be with you today. It is an honor and a privilege to be able to share with you all uh, as we worship together on this day. Uh, our text today comes from Psalm 126. I'll read this to us. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dreamed. Our mouths were filled with laughter. Our tongues with songs of joy. Then it was said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us, and we are filled with joy. Restore our fortunes, Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow with tears will reap with songs of joy. Those who go out weeping, carrying seed to sow, will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with them. This is Psalm 126. I want to talk to you today about this book that we have in the Bible in the Old Testament that's a really big chunk of it, and it's called the Psalms. The Psalms is a lot like the Bible's songbook because it's full of all these songs. And different scholars like to divide the Psalms up in different ways, but one of the ways to divide them up is based on their function, what they do. So I want to look for a few minutes here about the Psalms of what are these Psalms in the Bible? Like, what do they do? What are they? Well, first of all, we need to remember that the Psalms are songs. <laughs> they are songs. They're not just one genre of song. We might look at it and we go, okay, so the genre that the Psalms are in, the type of literature that it is, is songs. But you know as well as I do that there's a whole bunch of different kinds of songs, songs that do all different kinds of things. My family, for example, whenever we're in the car, we basically listen to three kinds of music. Whenever my wife is in charge of the music, we usually listen to like indie pop. Okay, so we listen to the local Lightning 100 station. We listen to indie music. That's what we listen to, okay? When I'm in charge of the music, we're usually either listening to hip-hop or to worship music. It's usually one of those two things, okay? Uh, but let's be real. Like, the time that we spend the most listening to music is when my daughter, who's eight years old, is in charge of the music. And when she's in charge of the music, it's her songs, which at this point are Olivia Rodrigo. Okay, so we've got these three different types of music that are doing very different things. Indie pop is doing something different from worship music. Worship music is doing something very different from in, uh, Olivia Rodrigo. They're all music, but they're different types. Well, in the same way, the Psalms all have kind of different types to them. There's different kinds of Psalms. So we have Psalms like Psalm 8, which is considered a hymn of praise. These Psalms focus less on specific events and more on praising who God is, right? His greatness and his kindness toward the world. Then there are Psalms like Psalm 73, which are considered wisdom Psalms. There are Psalms like Psalm 91, which is considered a Psalm of trust. These Psalms call upon the fact that God can be trusted. Even in difficult times, God is good. These psalms help us to put our trust in God. And then there are other types of psalms. There's psalms of lament. 
which are actually the largest category in all the Psalms. Psalms of lament express deep struggles to God. In the modern church, we're often afraid of lament. The, the songs of lament, Psalms of lament, are a lot harder to write worship songs about. <laughs> we're kind of afraid that we're going to depress everyone because they're, they're grieving and they're struggling and they're wrestling. We're, we live in a culture today where we're taught to suppress our pain rather than to express it and to direct it. These psalms, the psalms of lament, are not neatly packaged theologically. There's often no resolve to them. They're left hanging. They express struggle and doubt and pain and despair. But the reality is we need language for that. And the psalms gives us language. The expression of doubt and pain and human emotion is not antithetical to Christianity. It's literally at the heart of our Bible in the psalms. It's telling that this category is the largest among all the psalms, the psalms of lament. Jesus prayed Psalm 22 when he said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Among the psalms of lament are the imprecatory psalms, which uh, they're just going to freak you out. I mean, like the imprecatory psalms are not only just expressing despair, but also expressing anger and even thoughts of violence. The Bible contains the full range of human emotion. The Psalms contain the full range of human emotion. There's also Thanksgiving Psalms, which express gratitude for what God has done. So if you have the Songs of Lament on one side and the Psalms that are the Thanksgiving Psalms on the other side, you see this like broad range of all the emotions that we experience. Thanksgiving Psalms are Psalms that we can sing in times when we do see God's faithfulness evident and clear in our lives. And we say thank, thank you to God for that. There are salvation history psalms, which specifically focus on God's salvation for his people, particularly from slavery in Egypt. And then there are psalms of celebration and affirmation. These were often used in the ancient world at special ceremonies for renewing the covenant or that speak of God's kingship over his people or were for the enthronement of earthly kings, or specifically songs about Jerusalem, which was the holy city, the place where God was said to live, and the place that showed all the pagan nations, hey, our God lives in our neighborhood. Our God lives with us. The psalm that I read just a minute ago that is our text today is unique. It doesn't really fit the categories that we talked about, and it has elements of most of the categories in its small little package. It's a song specifically about Israel's return from exile. What does that mean? Well, really quickly, we have to understand like the arc of the Old Testament and the history of God's people, the children of Israel. The central and defining event in Israel's history was the story that we have in the book of Exodus, where they were set free from captivity in Egypt. This includes God calling Moses to be their deliverer. The plagues that were all brought against Egypt. It's a crazy story. If you have the chance to go and read the book of Egypt or the book of Exodus, you'll see all of these things that happened. The Passover story where the angel of death passed over the houses of the Israelites because they were identified as his people. And then this, this ultimate moment where the children of Israel have been set free from Egypt and they find themselves Pharaoh's armies chasing them on one side and then they have the Red Sea on the other side and they're not sure what to do and God parts the Red Sea. This is their story. That becomes their defining reality, their reference point. From there, the children of Israel wander the desert for 40 years, 
they become wilderness wanderers. This is where they learn often in fits and starts to trust God and where they're given their mission. Eventually, they reach the land that God promised them. They eventually grow to become an empire. They build a temple as God's house, a signpost that unlike the pagan God, the pagan gods, our God lives with us. Unfortunately, when they do become an empire, they start to do all the things that empires do. <laughs> so they amass military strongholds. They overburden their people with taxes. They take on slaves, which is so frustrating because do you remember what God saved them from? He saved them from slavery. And then slowly the empire of Israel begins to look a lot like the old empire of Egypt, which enslaved them. Eventually they find themselves overrun. They're conquered in Babylon. And this conquering is a gradual process. What happens is Babylon goes in and conquers the people, right? And then begins to take them out of their home in Israel and take them to Babylon, okay? Then what they do is they find all these other people that they conquered from all over the world and they start to take those people and they put them in Israel. So they kind of mix all of these different people together. This was common because they didn't want them to ever have a nationalism that would cause them to revolt. So they put all different kinds of people and backgrounds together. Then what they did is they took the best and brightest out of Israel and they took them to Babylon, all the leaders and the thinkers and all of that kind of stuff. We have to understand how difficult this was for Israel. Their identity, who they were, was so much centered on the land that God promised them and the land that God had given them. Remember, they had crossed through the Red Sea. They had wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. And then finally, they reached this land that God had promised them. They built the empire there. That was their home. And now all of a sudden, they're displaced. They're taken out of their home. They struggle with that. And since their home was the place where God's temple was, where God was said to live, there was this homesickness. Not only do we miss our, our land, but we miss our God. We feel disconnected to our God. He is nowhere in sight. So, so many of the Psalms have this cry that's like, how do we even sing songs of God's faithfulness in a foreign place? How do we sing about how faithful and how good God is when we are so detached from him and so far away from him? How do we sing our songs in this foreign land? They long to return home. They long for a day when their songs would make sense again, the songs of God's faithfulness. And honestly, they had little tangible proof that that would ever happen until it does happen. In the Old Testament, we have these broad themes like creation, exodus, desert, promised land, exile, return from exile. And what's cool is in the New Testament and the story of Jesus, we see the fulfillment of those themes. We see the expanding of those themes in Jesus. So I'll give you an example. Like in Jesus, we have a new creation. There was the first creation, but now there's a making right. There's like a new creation that's bursting forward in the present world. In Jesus, we have a new exodus, but this time we're not just set free from slavery in Egypt. We're set free from sin and death itself. We have a new promised land that's waiting for us. And it's not just one plot of land in the world. It's a whole world made right and restored. That's our inheritance as the people of God. Psalm 126 says, We were like those who dreamed. Our mouths were filled with laughter. Psalm 126 is a celebration 
that happens when God's people have returned from exile. This little bitty psalm contains all the scars of those who have been through war, who have been displaced, who have been persecuted, who have suffered psychological trauma of being enmeshed into a new culture, but also the incredible joy of now returning home. We were like those who dreamed. Their longing, their dream came true when Cyrus became the king of Persia and allowed the Israelites to return to Jerusalem. They were free. They were no longer under pagan oppression. And it says our mouths were filled with laughter. Other translation says we became a people rejoicing or a people with laughter in our mouths. That's who the people of God are. That's who we are. We're a rejoicing people. The church has always believed that every Sunday that we gather is kind of like a little party (laughs) or a big party. It's almost like a little Easter Sunday or put it in kind of uh, cultural terms, it's like a Super Bowl Sunday. Like every time we gather, it should be a feast and a party of resurrection because the world is different. We are a rejoicing people. Have you ever experienced a moment in your life when your mouth was so overcome with laughter you couldn't contain it? Eugene Peterson said, Joy is not a requirement of Christian discipleship. It's a consequence. In other words, joy is not something that Christians just have to have. You better be joyful if you're a Christian. No, it's the result of walking with Jesus as we see his faithfulness. And then this verse says, It was said among the nations. So God's goodness to Israel is then testified to the outsiders, to the nations. John Golden Gay says it's almost as if Israel didn't quite realize all that had happened to them until they heard the nations say it. (laughs) Until the nations said, your God is good. They didn't quite fully understand what was going on. This can be something so powerful about hearing the goodness of God in the mouths of other people. So we as Christians don't exist as little individual joyful Christians. No, we're a community. We're a people who clarify and refine the source of joy for one another. We do this in worship. When we celebrate, when we gather together and we celebrate God's goodness, we're not just reminding ourselves of God's goodness. We're reminding the person next to us that God is always good. Worship is a corporate thing. We don't come together on Sundays merely for personal edification. And it's not just for the absorption of content. That's not, shouldn't be the point of Sunday mornings, right? It's we worship. Worship means we collectively reorient ourselves. We point ourselves to the risen King. We rejoice together. And we have this cool opportunity in community. I know you guys have been talking about the power of community. And we have this cool opportunity in community that we frame joy for one another, right? So we remind each other of what to be joyful about. We have the opportunity to remind each other, especially in hard times, all that God has blessed us with. There's a snowball effect that happens with joy. It's contagious. When we share the source of our joy and it is confirmed with others, it brings about even more rejoicing in the person sharing and the person receiving the news. I think about this cool story in the New Testament when Mary the mother of Jesus, heard from the angel Gabriel the news that she's going to give birth to the Savior of the world. And then she goes to the home of her relative Elizabeth, 
her joy was contagious. Elizabeth was pregnant too. And so it says when she greets Elizabeth, the baby in Elizabeth's womb leaped for joy. And Elizabeth said, blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill his promises to her. We share joy among one another. Joy grows in community. And yet to add another wrinkle to this, this verse is particularly about the testimony of God's goodness about the pagans, like in the mouths of people who aren't Christians. It's so wonderful when your community or your neighbors or the people even outside the church attest to God's faithfulness in your life. The natural outgrowth of that is as we testify of God's goodness among ourselves, we live out of this joy and then people even outside the faith begin to point to what God has done. Talk about contagious. I want to suggest that joy is a precious commodity in our culture. We often seek, we're not a real joyful culture right now, and we often seek out joy through entertainment and through experiences. And of course, we are to take joy in these things. For, for, by all means, if you have a show that makes you feel joy, celebrate that. That's great, okay? Or, or if you have an experience, if you go to a concert or you're out in nature and you just feel an overwhelming sense of joy, celebrate that. Those, those are gifts. Those are beautiful moments and opportunities. But the reality is the joy that comes from those things doesn't really last. It's fleeting. It's only as long as the experience is around. True joy is about choosing to live in God and not by our own needs and fancies. Peterson says, we can decide to center ourselves in the God who generously gives and not our own egos which greedily grab. The results of this kind of joyful life is the kind of joy expressed in Psalm 126. It's a joy that's rooted in the past. So, if you notice that a lot of the Psalms, as you read them, that they play around with time. So they jump from the past tense to the present tense to the future, and they kind of jump back and forth to where you, you read it and you go, I don't know if this is talking about something that happened before or something happened now or something in the future or what it is. It really kind of all mixes all that together. Verse three serves as a hinge verse here. It says, the Lord has done great things for me in the past, and we are filled with joy in the present. This is a shift from the past tense to the present tense. There was a part before that was past tense. And then because of what God did in the past, we are filled with joy. But then it quickly switches to the future tense. Restore our fortunes, Lord. Joy is something that's expressed in the present about the past, <laughs> but joy has a future. It's not based on temporary conditions, how sales are going, <laughs> the state of the stock market, the latest polling numbers, the weather. Christian joy is not based on that stuff. God, the joy of God's people is rooted in God's faithfulness in the past. This is what Israel held on to while they were in captivity. They could have given up their hope in Yahweh altogether, and sometimes they came really close, but they're a Passover people. A Red Sea people. This is who they are. How could they turn anywhere else? Again, Peterson says, joy has a history. Joy is the verified experience of those involved in what God is doing. For the Christian, we look back on God's faithfulness to his people in the past. 
and the culmination of that in the fact that Jesus died and rose again from the dead. So God is faithful, and the ultimate sign of God's faithfulness is what Jesus has done for us through the cross and the resurrection. So when difficulties come, we can remember we are a lay-your-life-down people, and we are a resurrection people. That's who we are. That's our identity. That's where our joy comes from. God's faithfulness also points us forward in time, as I said. The same God who raised Christ from the dead is at work in the world and will make things right. Joy is nurtured by anticipation. We long for something. We anticipate something. I wonder if you've ever experienced the anticipation of a child. My little girl is uh, just exceptionally joyful. She looks forward with so much anticipation to what's next. Halloween is coming up in a few weeks and she, gosh, she has known what she wanted to be for Halloween for the whole year. She has been anticipating this. She has been longing for trick-or-treating, all of these things. And then as soon as Halloween is over, she will get ready for next year. And also we got Christmas coming up. So she's been making lists and she's been thinking about all of that kind of stuff. Unfortunately, our Halloween experiences are limited. The reason why Halloween is so fun is because it's one night a year. (laughs) If every night of the year we all got dressed up in costumes and went door to door and asked for candy, it would probably get really old really fast. And it wouldn't be so special, right? We have something to anticipate. Well, God's new world doesn't have those limitations. It's not limited by how long an experience lasts. The Christian hope is there will be a day when all wrongs will be undone when the world will be right and we long for that day and it will last forever. In the last part of this section, the psalmist looks forward with anticipation. Restore our fortunes, Lord, like streams in the Negev. The Negev is a vast desert. Its name means dry. (laughs) For most of the year, it's completely dry. It only gets eight inches or less of rain a year, which is barely enough to keep the plants that are there growing, right? Keep the agriculture sustained. But when experiences a sudden rain, the rain all comes at once. The desert blossoms quickly. Everything kind of blossoms really, really fast because of this big, intense rain. Our lives are like that. We are drought-stricken, dry, cracked on our own. But all of a sudden, when we are captured by the grace of God, he makes beautiful things out of the dust. The second image of hope is this. Those who sow with tears will reap with songs of joy. Those who go out weeping, carrying seed to sow, will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with them. I think about the words of Jesus, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. From what I understand, farming is hard work. I've never been a farmer. I I don't really um, don't have a history with farming, but farmers take the time to plant, to water, and to work the soil. And they do this in anticipation of the harvest. And then the harvest comes and there's rejoicing. And yet, with every single time of planting, there is a risk. Will the harvest come again next time, is the question. Farming is really more than a metaphor for this. It's actually the process itself. We bring 
all of our hard work, our toil, our sweat in our lives, and we ourselves can never guarantee the harvest. We have to trust God to meet our needs. God is the source of our joy. The reason why we pray before meals, Christians have often prayed before meals, is because we recognize he's the one who's provided for us. Yes, we might say, I earned the money. I went to the grocery store. I whipped up something in the kitchen. But this prayer reorients us to the fact that it is God who is the one who made the food grow and who once again has given us our daily bread. I think one of the misconceptions that we have about joy is we think sorrow and joy are mutually exclusive, that laughter excludes weeping. If you're joyful and you're happy, then you're not hurting, right? But Christian joy has sorrow in it. The children of Israel were a people who had experienced every form of oppression, and yet they were a people of joy. Pain and hardship happen, but they're never the final word. There's a tendency to want to numb our pain in hopes that the pain will go away. We see this in relationships. There are times for setting boundaries with people. There are even times for cutting people out of your life when they're toxic, especially if they've been abusive or codependent or manipulative. But I also know some people who cut off relationships just because they don't want to deal with people's real stuff. They don't want to deal with the hard work of relationship. Real relationships are those that walk together through the mess of life. Some of us avoid hard things because we're afraid of the pain that could come from failure. Sometimes we numb pain with alcohol or drugs or pornography, but we also numb our pain with vacations, entertainment, shopping. There's a difference between healthy coping with pain and unhealthy coping. It's easy to see if something is healthy or unhealthy with the question, what is it doing to me or to others? Taking vacations are a good thing. Getting away from the everyday grind is wonderful and important. However, does that become everything to the point where you're unable to experience joy in your life unless you're escaping? Psalm 126 is not about numbing, okay? When we talk about joy, and it's not about just trying to experience this temporary high. It's not about escape. These are people who have experienced their pain fully, and they found joy on the other side of it. So the question remains, how might we cultivate joy in our lives? Just everyday stuff. I think the first thing we do is to reflect on the past with gratefulness. If all we had in our lives was the cross and the resurrection of Jesus, that's the only good thing that ever happened to us, it would be enough. And yet all of us know of ways that God has brought us through, that God has shown himself to us, that God has used people in our lives to walk us through difficult circumstances. We can look on the past and say, God, thank you. Thank you for your faithfulness to me in this time or in this time. And Lord, above all, thank you for the the cross and the resurrection. Second thing we can do is allow yourself to be fully present in your experience, but know it's not the end of the story and know that you're not alone. So you can be fully present in whatever it is you're facing and experiencing right now, and yet know this isn't the whole picture and I'm not all by myself in this. 
We won't get anywhere by seeking to escape or to numb our feelings. We don't, as Christians, fake it till we make it, okay? We can be fully present and yet consistently remind ourselves through community, through the gathering of this body here, through spiritual disciplines, through worship, and through prayer, that our current circumstances are not everything. Okay. You can't do this alone. Don't try to do this on your own. Don't try to be an island. We need each other. And when you find your joy is slipping, find a way to give yourself to others, to be reminded of the rest of the story. Finally, so we look on the past with gratefulness. We allow ourselves to be fully present in our experience while not, while not allowing that, knowing that that's not the end of the story or the full picture. And then the third thing is we look to our future hope. In the present, we can see glimpses of our future hope. In everyday acts of self-giving love, the story that we're part of, the meal, we share the communion meal together, the meal that we share. And we're a people who, like an eight-year-old on October 30th, anticipating costumes and candy, long for that day when the world is made right, when we receive that inheritance fully and we step into all that God has designed for the world. You're not alone today. God is with you. There is hope. And you are a person and a people of joy. Thank you for listening. We gather every Sunday at the Clarksville area YMCA. For more information, please go to our website at redeeminghope.org.